0: Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. It's probably the the most uh, important and the most fun uh, Sunday morning service that I get to do anyways, is the Easter Sunday. I love it. So, if you know the story of the resurrection, hopefully you do, you know that uh, after Jesus rose from the dead... In Luke's gospel, there's a story where he appeared uh, walking along the road to, there's a couple of disciples, uh, one of them we know his name is Cleopas, we don't know who the other one is, but they are on their way to Emmaus. Jesus uh, you know they did they they knew that Jesus had been crucified but they didn't uh, they didn't know that he well they should have known but they didn't realize he had risen from the dead and so they're walking along the road and, and Jesus comes alongside them and they're all down in the mouth and and he's like you know what's going on and they're like you know where were you have you been under a rock or something you know it's And they start telling about Jesus and how he died and everything. And and so then Jesus really rebukes them and he's walking. And we don't know how long of a walk it was. But it says in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Could you imagine walking with Jesus? As he's sharing, hey, you know, back in Genesis, you remember when, when, uh, when Adam and Eve, you know, they sinned, and I talk, talked about the serpent. You know, he's saying all these things and going through all these scriptures, probably talking about the Passover lamb, all those things. What a Bible study that would have been. Well, I'm sure one of the scriptures that uh, Jesus um, would have shared Uh, would have been Psalm 22, and we're going to look at Psalm 22 this morning. As the disciples get to uh, this place, they're going to lodge for the night, they ask Jesus to stay with them, and and they want to share a meal with them, and, and so they share a meal. And uh, as Jesus is blessing the food, and I don't know, maybe they saw the scars, and all of a sudden their eyes are opened, and they realize that it was Jesus, and then he disappeared from their sight, and they went running back to the other disciples, and they said, the Lord has risen, the Lord has risen indeed, and appeared to Simon, That's like, the Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And like I said earlier, one of those scriptures that I think Jesus would have expounded is Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a very messianic psalm. It's all about Jesus. And I want to look at that this morning. Beginning with verse 1, it says, To the chief musician set to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. That would have probably been a melody. I can't, it would be so wonderful to have those melodies. Musicians probably can relate. You know, it would be awesome to know how, what that melody was. But this messianic psalm, Psalm 22, was written by King David. Not all the psalms were, but this one was. And it was written about 1,000 years before Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection. Psalm 22 has two sections. It starts out with the tears of the afflicted. And that's verses 1 through the beginning of verse 21. And it ends with the triumph of the resurrected. And that's uh, from the end of verse 21 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 31. So, 22, verse 1, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? This first half of the psalm is the psalmist's cry to the Lord, and it's an unanswered cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That should sound very familiar to you, because that's what Christ said on the cross as he was being crucified. Verse 2, it says, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you, delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. Verse 6, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. Our Savior, David is prophetically speaking, the words of the Lord here, but I am a worm and and no man. This speaks of the humility of the Savior. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8 says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, to the point of death, even the death of the cross. As we know, the, the story, the, the accounts in the Gospels, that Jesus was flogged, that he was beaten, he was mocked. And, you know, our images that we have, if you have seen old pictures of Jesus, you know, paintings of him on the cross, he's always covered up in some kind of a loincloth, but in reality, he was, he was stripped naked and beaten there crucified as a common criminal, and yet he was sinless and innocent. And so the humility of the cross. So this speaks of the humility of the cross, but excuse me, the humility of the cross. But it also speaks of a worm, the Tola worm. And that word actually, by the way, is translated scarlet or crimson in the Old Testament. It's the color of blood scarlet the color scarlet is used throughout the old testament it's very significant it's you can see it in the material of the tabernacle the material of the it's woven into the clothing of the high priest it's in the woven into the breastplate it's uh, it just runs throughout scripture and everywhere where it's associated in scripture the color crimson or the color scarlet is associated with sacrifice cleansing and redemption But not only does this word tola in Hebrew mean scarlet or crimson, but it also is the name of the worm, the scarlet worm, the insect. It's known as Coccus elicis, also known as kermes elicis. And in ancient times, to to extract the the dye that they used for all the scarlet colors that we just talked about, they were extracted from the dead insects, from these worms, these scarlet worms, the kermes elicis. And what's amazing, and I shared this on Good Friday in our, our message then, but what's amazing, you know, you can't make this up. When the female Kermes, Elysis, when that female scarlet worm is ready to lay her eggs, she climbs up on a tree and attaches herself to this tree permanently until she dies. She lays eggs Below her body on the tree, and as she's attached to this tree, her body is 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 swelling it's filling up with crimson- colored fluid. Eventually, the mother dies as the larvae are being hatched from those eggs, and when she dies, her body secretes this crimson- colored fluid covering the larvae, covering her young below her and staining both the larvae and the tree. Isn't that an amazing, it's an amazing thing that God has created into nature as a picture of his crucifixion. These larvae, they begin their new life covered in this crimson fluid and they feed on it to sustain them as they're on that tree. It gets better because when the dead female is removed from the tree, beneath her body is a white wax. It's just such a beautiful picture of what Christ's blood does for you and I. It cleanses us from all iniquity and washes us white as snow. Verse 7, it continues and says, All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb, you made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help Many bowls have surrounded me. Strong bowls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths. Like a raging and roaring lion, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death." This vividly describes the mocking that Jesus Christ endured while he was on the cross. And some of these phrases, you can go to the New Testament, this is literally what was spoken of him by the high priests, the chiefs, even the, one, of the, one of the prisoners, uh, one of the criminals that was hung, uh, being crucified next to Christ. These literal words, and yet they were prophesied a thousand years prior to this, through the prophet David, through the king David. Not only does this describe the mocking that Jesus endured, but it also gives vivid details to the physical and medical aspects of Christ's suffering. Verse 16, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. What's fascinating about this psalm, like I said, it's been it was written a thousand years before Christ was crucified, and when David penned this, stoning was the method of execution in his day, and yet here he vividly describes the crucifixion method of execution, which by the way, it wasn't invented until about four hundred years after David penned this psalm, verse eighteen. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Again, you can go to the gospel account and read how the soldiers, the Roman soldiers stationed at the cross, they literally gambled for Christ's clothing. Verse 19 But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. Now I'm reading out of the New King James Version, but the King James Version of this verse 20 is very instructive, insightful. It says, Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. That word, my darling is the Hebrew word yakid. And it's an adjective meaning soul, or only, or solitary. If you go through the Hebrew Old Testament, it's frequently used to refer to an only child. The Greek Septuagint translation of the Old Testament translates this word monogenes, or monogenes. I don't know how to pronounce it, I'm not a Greek scholar. But it means only begotten. And it reminds me of John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. At this point in the psalm, there's an amazing transition. In fact, it's an abrupt transition that takes place. It's in the second half of verse 21. This is where the psalm transitions From suffering to praise. From the tears of the afflicted to the triumph of the resurrected. Remember back in verse 1, where we read, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? That's the beginning of the psalm. But now, Psalm 22, verse 21, you have answered me. And right away, I think of Psalm 16, verse 10, "...for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption." In chapter 24 of Luke, verse 1, it says, "...now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb." Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how I spoke to you, Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb. And stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. I I never get tired of that story. I never get tired of the, the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, beginning now here in verse 22... Of Psalm 22. I will declare my name, excuse me, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. Now, I don't know if your Bible does this. My Bible, uh, if you look at that verse, the word my is in uppercase. And what the translators do in the Bible is when it's in uppercase, it's referring to deity, it's referring to God. So, this signifies the words of Jesus Christ. And what's interesting about that is before the crucifixion, Jesus never referred to his disciples as his brothers or his brethren. But after the resurrection, both in John 20 verse 17 and here in Matthew chapter 28 verse 10, he says, do not be afraid, go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. You see, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice. In fact, in Hebrews chapter two eleven, it says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. Isn't that amazing? Jesus Christ is not ashamed of you and I. He's not ashamed to call us his brethren. Along with that verse also, it says, In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. And that word praise, we sang it earlier in our worship song. It's halal. It's where we get the word hallelujah. And what's interesting, in the book of Psalms, the first mention in the book of of Israel's praises, that's what, Psalms was called the first mention is actually in chapter 18 or excuse me Psalms 18 verse 3 where it says I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised so I shall be saved from my enemies now if you were to go into go through the book of Psalms you'll find many other places earlier than that where the word praise is mentioned but it's a different Hebrew word the word halal it shows up there in chapter 18 verse 3 but it says who is worthy to be praised but the first time the action of praising is here in Psalm 22 at the time of the during the triumph of the resurrected excuse me in verse 22 I will praise you verse 23 you who fear the Lord praise him all you descendants of Jacob glorify him and fear him all you offspring of Israel. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first and foremost reason for you and I to praise God. Now, I don't know, we just went through the book of, of Jonah, and uh, Jonah, you know, getting 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 uh, vomited. Everyone would be kind of polite because people just had a bunch of pancakes so they do not even get sick. But, you know, Jonah was... Vomited, puked, whatever you want to call it. He was uh, hurled up onto the shore there. And I'm sure he was praising God for being delivered. And sometimes people praise God for, you know, maybe a promotion. Or you praise God for, for maybe the Lord's given you a wife or a husband or or the birth of a child. We praise the Lord for that. Or maybe for praising the Lord for a physical healing. And those are all good. And we should praise The Lord for those things. But the biggest reason we should be praising the Lord is for his resurrection, for what he did. The Bible says, For the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the suffering and the shame of the cross. I don't probably, I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but I don't have to tell you that our culture has just been changing right before our eyes. One of the things that I've noticed is it seems like our entire culture has got to, is everybody's a victim nowadays. Everybody's, it's a it's a poor me victim culture that we see all around us. And unfortunately, it even seeps into the church as well. And so the question I have to always ask myself, and I'm asking you this morning rhetorically, is where is your joy? Where is your joy? What or who is your joy in? He should be in the risen Lord Jesus because he's resurrected and what that means for us. Verse 24, For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him, he heard. Now if you recall back before Christ's crucifixion when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, he cried out with vehement tears to the Lord, to the Father who was able to save him. He was heard by the Father, we're told that in Hebrews, but he didn't receive an answer. The Father didn't deliver him at that time. Why? Because as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God was using the suffering of our Savior. He was accomplishing the work of redemption and reconciliation through Christ's suffering on the cross. That's why when Jesus cried out, Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. And there was no answer because there was no other way. Jesus had to die on the cross to set you and I free from our sins. But that begs the question, why does God sometimes allow me to suffer? Why does he allow me to go through things? I cry out, I pray, but why does he allow suffering even to take place? And there are a lot of people that struggle with that. If God's a loving God, why is all this bloodshed? Why is all this evil in the world? Well, suffering is the result of living in a fallen world. It's just the nature of of where we're at in, in, in life. Because we are sinners. But God uses suffering in our life either to accomplish something in us or to accomplish something through us. You think of Job. I mean, who suffered, besides Jesus Christ, who in the Bible suffered more than Job? Amazing. And really, the suffering had nothing to do with Job. God was trying to make a point to the devil that Job would still love him, even if, even if, God, even if all those things were removed from him, that he would still love the Lord God. And so God was allowing Job to go through that suffering, but it was accomplishing a purpose. And so if you're going through something even this morning and and you're struggling with something, I I just want to encourage you this morning. Trust the Lord because God loves you and he's got a plan and a purpose. He's not the cause of suffering, but he allows it for his glory and he'll use it. You just need to trust him. Verse 25. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those Who fear him. Now, I mentioned the King James Version, but the English Standard Version actually kind of nails it a little bit better here. In the original Hebrew, and the English Standard Version actually says it, My praise shall be from you. Instead of my praise shall be of you, it's my praise shall be from you. Charles Spurgeon in the Treasury of David said this Praise is celestial. In origin. What often passes for praise today, it's simply a work of the flesh. It really is. But true, pure praise comes from the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in us. It's an an outflow of the work that Christ is doing in us through the Holy Spirit. That's what true praise is. Remember back in verse 22. Where the psalmist says, "I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you." And if you think back to the life of Christ, you know Jesus started out with just 12 disciples. Eventually, more people came around. By the time of his ascension, there was about 120 disciples, followers of Christ. At Pentecost, in one day, there was three thousand more people that were added to the kingdom of heaven. And then from then on, daily, people were being added. That was back in verse 22, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly, but now my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. Hebrews twelve twenty two says this But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you know we're still in the world, but we don't we no longer have to be of the world we can now become members of God's kingdom. Well, how do you become a member of God's kingdom? It's by having your name entered into the Lamb's book of life. We'll be talking about that a little bit later. Colossians 1, verse 12, Paul writes this, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And now there's a great assembly. Verse 26 describes those who are registered members of the kingdom of heaven. Are you a registered member? Do you have your membership card? (laughs) Verse 26, The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's speaking of humility, being humble before the Lord. Then it says those who seek him will praise the Lord. And Jesus also said, Blessed are those who hunger hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. I love that, because if you are seeking the Lord, even this morning if you're seeking the Lord, he'll let you find him. He promises, he wants those, he wants you and I to seek him. And then let your heart live forever. And I think back to John chapter 6, verse 51, where Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven... If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And for you and I, by putting our trust in the risen Jesus Christ, we're not only going to find satisfaction, real lasting satisfaction in this life, but we also will receive eternal life because of his resurrection. Verse 27, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. And what this is speaking about, I believe, is the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. And if you wanted to look at Zachariah not right now, but if you want to check it out, read Zechariah 14. It's very vivid in how it describes the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. And that's not only one. There's several scriptures in the Old Testament that speak about it. But that hasn't been fulfilled yet. We're not living in the millennium right now. That thousand-year reign of Christ is still coming. However, this gives me great encouragement and great hope because... Jesus Christ, like I mentioned, the Psalm 22 was written a thousand years prior to, and it was fulfilled literally in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of all the Father's faithfulness to raise Jesus Christ from the dead, as he prophesied, you think all the prophecies in the Bible, they're all fulfilled literally. I haven't found one prophecy that was fulfilled like, well, it was fulfilled symbolically. No, they—they've all been the ones that have been fulfilled, they've all been fulfilled literally. And so that gives me great comfort. Because as I look forward to the future, I know that those prophecies will be fulfilled literally as well. And so there is coming a time when Christ will reign on the earth for a thousand years, known as the millennium. And because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can rely on God's faithfulness to fulfill every other prophecy in Scripture. I love it. I'm overjoyed that Israel is a nation once again, because that was prophesied that there would be an Israel in the last days. Here we are. The only thing that's missing at this point is, is the third temple, but that's, there are people working on it right now. They're trying, to, they're trying to make that a possibility very soon. So we're very close to the return of Christ. Verse 29, All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. And I go back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. All mankind from all ages from all nations, from all walks of life, whether they're rich, whether they're poor, whether they're strong or weak, whether they're powerful or insignificant, whether they're dead or alive, all creation, all humanity will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ and confess that he is in fact Lord. It's going to happen. The problem is, if people wait until they meet him face to face... It's going to be too late for them. Although they'll still acknowledge that he's Lord. But it won't make any difference for them. But because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you and I have the present choice now to bow our knee before him. We can do it now in this life and make him the Lord of our lives today. We have that option to do that. But God doesn't force that on you. It's a choice you and I have to make. Verse 30. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. You know who he's talking about? (laughs) It's you and I, here today. That's us. We are the ones that are alive in this planet right now. We are the generation who have a mission, who have a message. We're to impact the next generation. This is a shameless plug, but... If you want to get involved in impacting the next generation, man, we need children's ministry people. You know, sometimes people look at children's ministry and they think, well, it's just, you know, like babysitting the kids, you know, kind of keeping them quiet or something, giving them something to do because, you know, they'll get bored in the service or something like that. That's not at all what it is. You know, I can think back in my childhood and I remember just about every Sunday school teacher I had. I, I remember their names, I remember things about them. I remember that. Why? Because it impacted me. Children's ministry is very important. You want to impact the next generation, get involved with teaching kids about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for you and in your life. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have a mission before us. And we also have a message. And what's our message to the next generation? It's right there in verse 31. That he has done this. That word is the Hebrew word esau. And it's a verb meaning to do, to make, or to accomplish, to complete. And that takes us back to the cross. In John chapter 19, verse 30, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. This is what this psalm is talking about. What has he done? What is finished? What is finished? Well, that word, telestai, in the, new, in the Greek, it means paid in full. What was paid in full? Our sin, the price for our sin, was paid in full by Christ on the cross. He finished the work of redemption. And because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can have our sins forgiven, and we can walk in newness of life. Now, what's interesting about this psalm is it seems to end sort of abruptly. It just says he has done it. He hasn't said, well, what has he done? And of course, we know, looking on this side of the cross, we know he paid the price for sin. He, He purchased our salvation, our redemption. We know that. But the psalm doesn't explain that. And it kind of makes me think. But it takes me to Ephesians 2, verse 4, where Paul says this, But God, who is rich in mercy, Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What did Jesus accomplish on the cross? He paid the price for our sins. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. But I think as we go on into eternity, we're going to keep getting a more and more deeper understanding of just what he did. We get a greater appreciation. And I don't think throughout eternity we're ever going to exhaust appreciating and understanding and go, wow, I didn't realize that, of what Christ did for you and I. Throughout eternity, the fullness of what he accomplished for us is going to be continually revealed to us. Paul says this in Ephesians 3:8. To me, he's speaking about himself, who am the less least, excuse me, who am the less, who am less than the least of all the saints. This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. We're never going to get to the bottom of all that Christ did for us on the cross of Calvary. And so because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can have fellowship with God through him. That's why he calls us. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers. We have a reason to praise God. Christians, I, you know, I know we go through difficult times. I've gone through difficult times. I've been, I've been down before. I've been bummed out or things have happened, tragedies have happened. But you and I as believers, because of the resurrection, we should be the most joyful people on the face of the planet. We really should be, because of what Christ did for us. And because of the resurrection, our names can be registered in the kingdom of heaven. We can be members of God's heavenly kingdom. We not only have true lasting satisfaction in this life, but also eternal life. And because God promised that he would raise Christ from the dead, and, Christ, and God did raise Christ from the dead, we can trust God's promises that he's going to be faithful to fulfill every other prophecy in Scripture. And we have the choice, even today, to bow the knee to him in this life. Again, he doesn't force us. It's a choice each of us have to make. And we do have a mission to the next generation and a a message of what Christ has done. And because of the resurrection, we can have forgiveness of sins and walk in that newness of life. And once we are in heaven, face to face with our Savior, rejoicing in what he did, we're never going to get tired of the story. We're never going to get to the point where like, I've got it all figured out. It's going to be continually revealed to us what Christ did on the cross. I think we're going to be blown away forever, amazingly. And we can have all these things because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Man, there's so much much richness in his resurrection. But I've been saying here that you can have all these things, because it's not automatic. Jesus Christ paid the price. He completed the work of redemption. But it's a choice of you and I, what we want to do with that. I mentioned earlier having your name written in the Lamb's book of life. That's how you enter into heaven. If your name is in the Lamb's book of life, well how do you what do you do? What do you need to do? It's really pretty simple. It's as simple as ABC. It literally is. A, admit that you're a sinner in need of a salvation. In need of salvation, excuse me. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. There's no one righteous. There's no one that does good. So admit that you're a sinner in need of a salvation. B, just believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin and that he rose again. Believe the story of the resurrection. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then finally, C, call out to the Lord in prayer. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's really quite simple. It's simple for you and I, A, B, and C. It wasn't simple for Christ. I mean, he suffered his life. He gave his life, shed his blood for us. It was a very high price that he paid. But if you do these things, you too, the Bible calls it being born again, you'll be born again, and you will have eternal life. But again, the choice is up to each one of us. I just want to finish with this. Christ has risen indeed. Let's stand up and let's pray.